Hi everyone, this is Ben Guest, and today's conversation is with Dave Zirin. Dave has a new book out this week called The Kaepernick Effect, about Colin Kaepernick's protest and how that inspired people across all levels of sports in all different leagues. It's a fantastic book. I just finished it yesterday, and I can't recommend it strongly enough. In this interview, we talk De La Soul and the tribe called Quest. We talk about how WNBA players have led the way for activism, how Jay-Z showed class solidarity with his fellow billionaires when he partnered with the NFL. We talk Steve Kerr, Megan Rapinoe, Eric Reed, a whole bunch of great stuff, and we end with a story about Prince. Enjoy. Dave, thanks for coming on. So senior year in high school, what music are you listening to? Well, great time my senior year of high school because it was the ascension of Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Native Tongues. It was before Wu-Tang Clan. So I guess I was listening to Scenario, Leaders of the New School, Tribe Called Quest, as well as the Scenario remix, the best remix of a posse cut in hip hop history. From a Marxist lens, how do you view sports in America? I mean, it depends on what we're talking about, first and foremost, when we say sports. But if we're talking about the business of organized sports, I mean, I actually think that Marxism is critical for understanding it because your starting point has to be the totality of it, that this is a trillion dollar global business. It's not fun and games. It's a business. Now, that might sound obvious, but that's very important. And then you have to ask yourself, well, uh, where are the workers in this business? Who are they? And so some of that is actually accepting the fact, and I've had this trouble with a lot of leftists, but accepting the fact that the athletes are the workers. And for some people that's hard to accept because they say, oh, they play a game or they make tremendous amounts of money, but there is hyper exploitation that exists at all levels in the world of sports. Whether you're talking about the small salaries of the minor leagues, whether you're talking about the high injury rates in all sports, but particularly the most popular sport in the United States, that's the National Football League. Whether you're talking about the fact that these athletes tend to come very disproportionately from poor backgrounds, that they're disproportionately people of color, and uh, there's a high level of exploitation that it takes to get to that point. And it's not just exploitation um, and this is why I think it's hard for sometimes for um, Marxists to get their head around, is that the exploitation of the athlete is kind of different than in other industries. I once had an athlete uh, who was also a union rep named Brian Mitchell, who said it to me this way. He said, look, um, a chef has a job and it's to cook a steak. Our job is to play, is like, we're like the chef, but we're also the steak. So we're the person who makes the meal, but we're also the meal because they are consumed then by an audience and they also can consume themselves through the hyper physical activity that it takes to actually be an athlete and the injuries that they put themselves through. So it's a very particular kind of exploitation, a very particular kind of setup in terms of class and race, but it also provides us, I think, a very interesting window into this country. Um, and it's a place where, uh, one of the few places where if you grow up poor and black, you can have a microphone and a platform to actually speak about the world. Uh, Howard Bryant has called black athletes uh, the most visible black workers in the United States. And I think that's accurate. And I also think it's why 
Uh, it's such an intrinsic part of the culture. It's why we can't think about the 1950s without thinking about Jackie Robinson or the 60s without Muhammad Ali or the 70s without Billie Jean King or our current period without thinking about people like LeBron James or Colin Kaepernick or certainly the WNBA, which you know changed an entire Senate race this last year. So I think having that kind of perspective, a class perspective, certainly, of sports and how it operates and an understanding of the very particular rules and tools of exploitation that exist is, is absolutely critical. 100%. And your book, The Kaepernick Effect, which is out this week, which I just finished yesterday, is fantastic. Thank I believe you. you opened the book with a great quote from Howard Bryant. And then there's another quote in, in the book as well from him. So if we talk about that window, um, how harmful is the patriotism around sporting events. Can we draw a through line from the national anthem at baseball games to boots on the ground in Afghanistan? Oh, absolutely. Um, one is connected to the other. And that's, and, but again, to be a little bit nuanced about it, that doesn't mean that everybody standing up for the anthem is for boots on the ground in Afghanistan or for forever wars or the like. But the connection of tying patriotism to sports and tying patriotism to the military goes back as long as there has been sports in the United States. And so when that doesn't take place in the world of sports, that's actually the exception, not the rule. I mean, the early days of organized baseball were explicitly tied to uh, the invasions that were taking place all across the Western Hemisphere. Uh, with uh, the, by the United States with the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, Albert Spaulding, one of the founders of organized baseball, he said, baseball follows the flag. And uh, that, that has remained true to this day. Also, um, the playing of the anthem, uh, you start to see it a little bit during World War I. You see it a lot more in World War II, but it doesn't happen between World War I and World War II. And really at the end of World War II, what do you have? You have the immediate onset of the Cold War. And so keeping the anthem, it was almost like symbolic of saying we are now in a permanent state of conflict between our values and the values of the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union and our national anthem is part of that. And then after the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall fall, we keep the anthem again, this time in the context of the, the Persian Gulf War. And of course, that's played out in all kinds of ways in the post 9-11 era, not only playing the anthem, but a second anthem during the seventh inning stretch in baseball, um, formal partnerships between the military and sports, uh, particularly the National Football League, and then Colin Kaepernick challenging that and saying that, wait a minute, this anthem space is actually a political space. It's not just you know some sort of fun and games shallow tribute to the country. This is a political space. And I'm going to protest in this space to highlight the difference between what this country says it is and what it actually represents, for, particularly for Black Americans. In the middle of Kaepernick's protest and the support for that and the inspiration that people found in that, the NFL called a press conference with Jay-Z, said they'd partnered with Jay-Z and Rock Nation I think Jay-Z was going to advise the NFL on halftime shows and who would perform at the halftime shows. Did Jay-Z sell out? Is he giving the NFL cover? Well, I don't think he sold out because Jay-Z is a billionaire. And so to sell out implies that he's somehow acting um, not in accordance with his class. 
And so, you know, Jay-Z was, was operating exactly as Jay-Z in our society says he should operate. If he did otherwise, then he'd be a class trader. And Jay-Z is many things, but a class trader is not one of them. And so there was an imperative by the NFL and their billion dollar owners to move on from Kaepernick and try to turn the page on Kaepernick and that, and Jay-Z was more than willing to be the face for that. I thought that was very shameful. He said, we've got to move on from kneeling. And it's like, well, what you're really saying is we've got to move on from Kaepernick. And at the time, you know, it's less so now that it's been four or five years. It's been five years, four years, really, of him being a pariah, of him being, you know, blackballed from the game. Uh, but, you know, it was when Jay-Z said that, it was still a moment where people were demanding that Kaepernick get a job and that he not be punished for freedom of speech. And uh, so to have Jay-Z say something like that, yeah, it was quite the betrayal. Right. So really, Jay-Z's... accordance with who he is. Jay-Z is showing class solidarity, actually, yes. is, is what he's doing. You mentioned the WNBA. Yes. And of all the professional leagues and all the professional athletes, I think it was really the WNBA athletes who led the way and who don't get enough credit. Could you just speak to that? Yeah, I mean, the WNBA, I mean, the, the, the problem is, of course, that uh, the spotlight on the WNBA is very narrow, uh, but that hasn't diminished their influence. Um, their influence has been catalytic in the world of sports because of some very particular athletes who've been able to stand up and speak out in the WNBA and be heard. And to me, an athlete like Maya Moore, who is arguably the best to ever do it, for her to walk away from her sport because uh, someone who was close to her family, who she's since married, uh, was locked away behind bars on a ridiculous charge uh, dating back to his teenage years. I mean, that, that's incredibly powerful, an athlete walking away in their prime to do something like that. Uh, to have the WNBA players play a critical role in Kelly Loeffler being defeated against uh, Raphael Warnock in their Senate race. I mean, that, that's huge. That, that was changed U.S. history, changed the control of the Senate. And it happened because these athletes are political, they're very politically sophisticated. So they didn't just say down with Luffler, who of course people may know owned 49% of a WNBA team. Uh, they, they actually, they put forward Warnock as an alternative to that and increased his visibility profoundly um, and made a big difference. And they also debated with Warnock about some of his politics. Uh, they spent time doing that when they were in the bubble in Orlando, or as they called it, the wobble. Um, and I've spoken with, you know, some of this we have to also acknowledge is, is, you know, branding of a kind. Like I've spoken to WNBA franchise owners, and they see this as being very important to the growth of the league, to having athletes who are visible, to having athletes who are political, to having athletes who stand for something. But just because they're giving free reign doesn't mean it automatically is going to happen. You still have to have athletes who are going to grab it and go with it and do something with it. And that's exactly what so many of these WNBA players have done. And we got to remember that they were protesting during the anthem during that summer of 2016. They didn't do it nearly as dramatically as Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, but they came out wearing black t-shirts and held hands and uh, particularly the Minnesota Lynx because of the police killing of Philando Castile, who uh, is from the Twin Cities.
right? And years earlier, the WNBA was at the forefront of LGBTQ rights. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, WNBA athletes have much more to lose because they have a much, they make much less money than their NBA counterparts. Yeah, Speaking and they were the fined during that summer of 2016 mm -hmm. and they refused to buckle and the fines were rescinded. And I think having that happen in the immediate uh, period before Kaepernick took his knee was also, I think, very influential. Speaking of the bubble and basketball, in the NBA, during the bubble, there was a moment where NBA players were right on the brink of not playing, of striking, um, of collective action. And um, then famously, there was a conference call with former President Barack Obama, I think it was Chris Paul, LeBron James, and instead they decided to um, have some, some phrases on, on the uniforms, on the court, et cetera. Did NBA players miss an opportunity there? Well, first, I mean, they did strike. I mean, playoff games were canceled um, after the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, I felt like they had to respond to the police shooting of Jacob Blake. Um, and then there was the question about whether it would extend through the playoffs and whether the playoffs would happen or not happen. And, you know, they, Barack Obama does what Barack Obama does, which is he stopped something radical from happening, uh, for the purposes of keeping the business going. Uh, that's what he does. I mean, I think what, what's wild to me is people who would expect otherwise. I mean, those are Barack Obama's politics. And um, yeah, he intervened to make sure that the playoffs happened. And at the time, I thought that tactically that was a mistake, but also that it was a bit of a wash because it was such a radicalizing moment. But I really do think in retrospect, yeah, they did miss an opportunity uh, to make a particularly strong statement about this country to actually cancel the playoffs and the championships on the basis of police violence in the United States. I mean, I already think they had made history by the Milwaukee Bucks did and then by the playoff games being canceled because that had this incredible uh, ripple effect throughout other sports where you saw pretty much every other sport cancel games because of this shooting of Jacob Blake, you know, spurred on by what the NBA did including a sport like baseball, which is historically so conservative. Um, but uh, it could have gone farther. There's no question about that. And it didn't because Barack Obama decided to intervene and tell them to, to stop this striking shit. Um, what also needs to be treasured though, is that what these NBA players did is that they NBA players did, and we talked about Marxism earlier, is they brought the question of labor uh, into the Black Lives Matter movement. And they brought the question of striking into the Black Lives Matter movement. Now these are things that, you know, the labor movement has been largely MIA, you know, with some exceptions of terms of local unions, but as an institution, labor has been largely MIA on this struggle. And so to see athletes intervene in that space and introduce the strike as part of this movement, I think historically is something that we need to mark down. 100%. You bookend your, your book, The Kaepernick Effect, with John Carlos, the famous Olympian. Instead of calling Barack Obama, if the players had called John Carlos, what do you think his counsel would have been? 
without question, John Carlos's counsel would have been to not play. Uh, and it would have been to say, if I'm good enough to watch and perform, then, then I'm good enough for you to hear me. And if people had said, well, what concessions do you want? Well, um, at the time, the Milwaukee Bucks were demanding concessions. There were several bills in front of the, the, the Wisconsin State House that dealt with things like ending qualified immunity for police officers. And the, those bills, they promised, you know, that those bills would be taken up. And of course, they weren't. So, you know, that, that idea of like when you, you know, this is such a tactical question, like when do you pull back from protest? Well, I think they learned that you pull back when your demands are actually met, not when promises are made. You have a great quote from Steve Kerr who said, follow the kids, right? The idea that follow the youth, they're going to lead us in the right direction. As adults, what's incumbent on us to teach and or model for the youth? Uh, what a great question. I think first we have to know what we're dealing with. Um, and that's that this generation is more diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States. So that's the raw material that exists. Um, I think one of the things we have to do as, as older generation is first of all, give them space to lead. Um, that's very important. And the second thing we have to do is make sure that we, we model taking history very seriously because the great historic problem with the u.s left has been you have these huge explosions of struggle and then years of quiescence uh, you need to have consistent struggle you need to have consistent organization you need to have sustainability uh, if you're going to win and uh, i think teaching that so they're not having this same discussion when they're our age about the young people then I think is very important. So a, a treasuring of history, I think is vital. And kind of in that same vein, you have a great quote from Megan Rapino and the role of white people. And she says, if someone is getting arrested, you should too. Can you just uh, expand on that? Well, it's interesting. Megan Rapino is a very interesting case because she was the first white person to kneel after Colin Kaepernick kneeled. And it's very interesting if you look at the, tra the trajectory of their two careers since then, because we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Um, Colin Kaepernick was um, ostracized from his sport, unable to make a living. And Megan Rapino has seen her, if anything, her reputation be burnished in the meantime, and has become an icon um, and somebody who does subway commercials and things like that. So you have to ask yourself why in one case was the reputation um, exalted and the other one, the reputation was torn to shreds. And I think that, I mean, that speaks to the persistence of white supremacy in the United States. Um, it speaks to a lot of other things too, like, like the conservative nature of football and who runs football teams and who runs the National Football League. Uh, but you know, more importantly, I think we have to realize it speaks to the risk and the sacrifice that black folks make when they do protest and then the importance of being white and taking part in these protests not out of some sense of guilt or you know that phrase allyship but out of a genuine sense of solidarity where you ask yourself what kind of world do i really want to live in do i want to live in a racist society or don't i even if there are ways in which i benefit from that racism you either want to live in that society or you don't and so for white people to speak out it's so important because the, the, there is 
more space in which to do it. Um, I mean, you mentioned Megan's example of getting arrested. Like I've seen situations where a black person is being arrested. Uh, a white person intervenes and says, you'll have to arrest me too. And the police decide just to walk away and not arrest wow. anybody as opposed to arresting both. And I think that that's something people have to realize that is one of the dynamics that exists. The other central person in Kaepernick's initial protest, who I hope doesn't get lost in history, is Eric Reed. Sure. And you have a great quote in your book from Reed, where he says, am I living how Christ would want me to live? That yeah. he's um, centering his faith, his Christian faith, with his protest. Um, can you talk about that? Well, only that, um, you know, these athletes are have different motivations and come at this some some secular and some religious. Uh, and it's it shouldn't surprise us at all, given the predominance of athletes of black athletes who um, not only come from religious backgrounds, but also come from the South in the United States, particularly sports like football. I once had a coach tell me that the area that, that told me this 15, 16 years ago, that the area hit hard by Hurricane Katrina was the perfect soil for professional athletes because of, of racism, institutionalized racism and poverty and year round football because of the weather. So that's the soil where the football players come from. And, you know, that's Eric Reed's background as well. And so, you know, Eric Reed is very strongly, like several of these activist athletes I've spoken with, are, is informed by faith and informed by the idea that fundamental to faith is not injustice or inequality, but justice. And so that, that's what drives them and motivates them in a way that, you know, people who use Christianity, for example, to use just one religion, although I think you could make this argument about any any organized religion, um, using it as a cudgel to divide people um, and, and uh, smash oppositions to equality. I mean, I think someone like Eric Greed would see that as being in direct opposition to the ideals of Christ that he was raised to uh, emulate. Last question. We started with music. Let's end with music. You went to school at McAllister College. I did. Did you ever make your way to Paisley Park? I did not, uh, but I did make my way to First Ave a million times. Paisley Park, I believe, I would have to look this up to be sure, but I remember, because I was a huge Prince fan. I knew people at McAllister who went there because of Prince. I met Prince while I was there. Um, I saw Morris Day in the time a million times at First Ave. That's where I met Prince. Okay, you, wait, you've got to tell us what meeting Prince. Give us the, the quick story. I know we're almost done here, but I'd love to hear no, that. Oh, no, please. Stop. I don't feel rushed. Um, I was at a Morris Day in the Time show, and I saw a guy who basically looked like a condominium with legs walking. And I saw another particularly massive human being walking right behind him. And I remember in my head thinking, whoa, are those guys on the Minnesota Vikings or something? Like, I, I remember that so clearly. And then I saw that in between them was this incredibly short guy. And I thought to myself, that short guy looks a lot like Prince. And then it all clicked with me, you know, the big bodyguards, the between all that. And I was 12 inches away. And so I just said, oh my God, you're Prince. 
And he turned and looked at me and he said, yes, I am. And you are. And I said, I'm Dave. And he said, right on, Dave. And then they just kept on walking. And I was just, I was just dumbstruck. And then I was mad that the only thing I thought to say was your prince, but it was such a, a shocker. I mean, and I thought also, my second thought after like, oh, I can't believe I just said, oh my God, you're a prince. My second thought was, how cool is it that Prince is hanging out at a Morris Day in the Time show? Like, am I living Purple Rain? This is unbelievable. How cool is that? So that was a, like my, I think the ultimate Twin Cities moment. Although there were a few, because great music came through the Twin Cities and First Ave and not unusual to be invited backstage by the Pogues to drink and things like that. Even if, if, if all you had to do was look enthusiastic in the front row and they would be like, who's drinking? You know, I mean, it was, it was just, it was a very good time. Do you, do you have a favorite Prince album? <sighs> wow. A favorite Prince album. I mean, Dirty Mind, I guess. Uh, Sign of the Times. Old school. I mean, but yeah. I could also go to Sign of the Times. Um, I, I just, I, I feel like when I listen to Prince now, it's on massive playlists and compilations just because it's all so no. good and it all runs together to me in, in a powerful way. Yeah, my Prince playlist is like 800 songs. Exactly, exactly. Dave, this has been great. Kaepernick Effect is out this week. Um, and, and please tell people where they can find you. Yikes, uh, can't believe it. Um, this book that I started during the pand at the start of the pandemic actually is coming out. Um, it, uh, people can hit me up on Twitter at Edge of Sports. I'm I'm responsive. Just hit me up. I keep my DMs open. The whole thing. And you know, but please buy the book. Please check it out. Uh, just a couple of little notes, just because I think all of this is political. First, if you're going to buy it online, please consider buying it at Bookshop.org, which uh, supports independent bookstores as opposed to Amazon, which supports this weird dude going off into space. Um, and the second thing I would say is when you buy the book, I'm giving my proceeds to a mutual aid organization called Serve Your City DC. So I'm not personally profiting off it because that seemed politically off given the sacrifice of the people I was interviewing. So, you know, it's a good cause too. So check out the book. Fantastic, get the book follow Dave on Twitter. And also you have a great um, podcast, Edge of Sports. I highly recommend people subscribe to that. And Dave, thank you so much. Let's do it again sometime. Love to, Ben. Thank you. That was my interview with Dave Zirin. This is Ben Guest, and you can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. If you like this podcast episode, please like, rate, and review. That helps a lot. Thank you.